0: He's gonna get you! He's gonna get you! He's gonna get you!
1: Gonna get you. Gonna get you. The boogeyman is coming! Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure, and as always be warned, these discussions may include spoilers. This week kicks off Daily Horror Habits' first series review of 2023, as each week a guest and myself will venture into the dreamlike waters of Don Coscarelli's bizarre horror fantasy series Phantasm, in which a ragtag group of friends fight the supernatural forces of a mysterious being known only as the Tall Man. In 1979's Phantasm, follows Mike, a young boy who's still grappling with the loss of his parents, who begins investigating disappearances in his small town. With the help of his brother Jody and friend Reggie, the trio uncover the truth behind the town's mysterious mortician, aptly referred to as the Tall Man, who may be behind the killings. And joining me to chat surrealism, bootstrap filmmaking, and demonic jawas is returning friend of the show and Blade Disgusting Zone, Mike Wilson. Mike, welcome back to the show, man. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed chatting about um, The Hills Have Eyes remake uh, the last time <laughs> yes. you were here, and that was it's a lot of fun. While. Yeah, it's been a minute, but uh, I'm really happy to have you on to chat about Phantasm, um, a film that I think I saw for the first time within the last you know three to five years, we'll say roughly. So I'm a newcomer to Phantasm, and it definitely took me more than one viewing for this movie, and it's really, really like truly singular brand of horror uh, to click with me in a way that now I'm excited to chat about this and exploring the rest of the series, which uh, I haven't previously had a chance to do yet. But uh, I'm excited to learn about you know your enjoyment of Phantasm, what you think makes it a standout. And uh, I'd like to start kind of with just, do you remember how you discovered Phantasm? Do you remember the first time you watched it?
0: Uh, well, that's uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, for me, Phantasm, it's not i have to say up front it's not my favorite of this uh, series but there are aspects that quite a lot about uh, quite a lot about it actually that i really do enjoy i mean we can get into it later but uh, for me it's kind of it's kind of a nostalgia trip because uh in my I don't know if it's my if you can call it your high school years your formative years I guess I don't know uh (laughs) anyways uh in high school I had uh discovered you know horror uh other franchises and I was kind of like the whole I wasn't old enough for art rated movies so I had kind of had to fake my way in Blockbuster to try and get, uh, you know, the films that I really wanted to see. And I did more often than not, because why not? Uh, so, yeah, uh, basically, Saturday night, I'd walk down to 7-Eleven, grab a Slurpee, <laughs> walk over to Blockbuster, uh, peruse the the, uh, the DVDs, uh, pick out uh, pick out one pick up a, a bag of uh, kettle chips and uh, then hopefully get pa- hopefully get past the the clerk says like yeah I'm 18 wink uh, <laughs> and then uh, go home and uh, that's my Saturday night and uh, like I said uh, that's how I discovered a lot of uh, a lot of uh, series including phantasm the first time that I saw Phantasm, I guess uh, I was actually seventeen, actually, which is kind of when you talk to, when you talk to Costarelli, uh he realized uh, he realized that a lot of the the audience, the target audience, actually was young boys, and it kind of fits in with the whole uh, one of the main central themes of Phantasm, which was death and uh just how uh mike uh michael baldwin's character deals with the passing of not only his brother uh but also his parents and i mean we could talk about we can talk about this later but it's kind of for me at least i phantasm is kind of a well it is a difficult film for me to sort of describe in the fact that it's Overarching the overall, it's fantasy horror, but then there are little aspects of other uh, genres in there that Coscarelli has thrown in, and I liken it to the trailer for Phantasm. You know, what is it? And in this case, it's is it sci-fi because there's there's sci-fi elements in there. Is it a, a ghost uh, story? There is some sort. Of, there is uh, some supernatural. Uh, there are some supernatural themes to there. Is it a zombie film? I mean, you can kind of, it's a bit of a stretch, but you can, uh, is it a slasher? Because there are there again, there are some certain elements in there. Uh, it's, but it also kind of, in that regard, it also plays, uh, with the, the films. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a negative because it does, again, feed into the o- overall sort of the fantasy horror, uh, theme of phantasm in that there is it's disjointed, which, when you think about it, it's like oh, that's not good. But then when you watch the film, it makes perfect sense because there is sort of a fantasy dreamlike theme element throughout. I mean, you know, all of the uh, the uh, dreams that Mike has in terms of where he's chased by the tall man and at the very end when he's talking with reggie and reggie is like it was all a dream you know jody died and you know that's sort of like you it plays with your mind in that regard where you know was it all a dream in terms of what uh, mike was experiencing and then of course at the end you know you get the famous scene where angus scrim the tall man is in the mirror and you just hear boy and then <laughs> but way before kratos did it yeah there's a, there's your a, there's a video game reference here for you folks <laughs> right at the end and it's just yeah there's this there is this sort of and people uh people have I mean, I'm not the only one who feels like there's a, a dreamlike aspect to it. And I'm sure that you do as well, that there is sort of there, the way that it's shot, the way that the uh, the score by uh, Malcolm Seagrave and Fred, you know, Fred Miro, the way that it all comes together and the way that it's shot, it
1: really does feel like a dream I mean, or a nightmare, whichever you want to call it. <laughs> Now, that oh, I got to say that was a, a pitch perfect Angus scrim right there for that boy. Uh, I'm not even going to attempt to do my own, but I totally agree. I think that, you know, I'm going to take a page out of our mutual pal, uh, Neil Bowles book, right, where he d- describes a lot of movies that have this similar dream-like aesthetic to them or quality to them um, as being things that you would watch at like 2 a.m. when you're all bleary-eyed and, you know, half asleep and, and everything. And, you know, even if with a film like this, that does really feel like a dream and sort of the, the lack of connectivity tissue between the transition of scenes or, you know, quite literally, Mike is having recurring dreams and whatnot and the ways in which you portray a narrative through that. At the same time, though, you know, there's – a lot of qualities to this movie that i think do it more favors than you know actually hurting it overall right because it is a fairly simplistic story it's not something that you know is pushing the boundaries of telling a narrative in horror but it's one of those examples about the way in which you tell a simplistic story can actually make the overall you know final product uh, that much more memorable i think and you know, that's a quality of this movie that I think plays really well with, again, you know, struggling to nail down a specific genre that Phantasm is a part of, right? It This truly is one of the rare films that I've come across or series that, you know, I can't really compare it to anything else in a way that, you know, it's not to say that it's always hits a specific mark for me. I think that Phantasm, like you, is not my favorite entry in the series so far. I've only seen one and two. But even in watching two recently for the first time and revisiting the original afterwards, that dreamlike quality is really the first film's defining quality, I think. And, you know, we'll get into it a little bit more about, you know, how that helps tell the story that's telling and how it makes this such a singular experience And. In- You know, I think more ways than one. But uh, before we dive into that, uh, I wanted to do uh, the new segment for Daily Horror Habit, which is Tale of the Terror Tape, in which I break down some stats of the film. Uh, So, as I said in the intro, Phantasm is written and directed by Don Coscarelli who at the time was known for being the youngest director to have a feature film distributed by a major studio. Um, When he sold his film, I believe it was Jim, the world's greatest to Universal Pictures. And he was 19 years old, which an insane statistic, I don't even know what that film is. But just the fact that, you know, he's gone from having this kind of, you know, this Guinness World Record type of accolade, if you will, um, to making a film that is absolutely unlike anything that came before it. And, you know, in some ways, uh, I don't know we've seen something quite as similar as Phantasm. Um, a big part of the inspiration for the movie came from this nightmare that he had about being chased by a floating silver spear, from a floating silver spear sphere down a marble hallway, um, which, you know, I think will, of course, unpack that moment uh, later on. But, you know, it's one of those examples where you know, somebody has such a vivid dream or a vivid imagination. And, you know, sometimes people begin projects by thinking about individual scenes. And I think that, you know, for that to be the Sort of birthplace of phantasm uh, is really incredible. Just again to think about, you know, how well defined that moment is in the film and how, you know, it has that, uh, you know, the film is very dreamlike. So the fact that the Genesis was partly from a dream, I think, is really, uh, really quite fitting, if you will. Uh, The film went on to make $22 million against a budget of roughly $300,000, which, you know, again, for the time period, uh, was pretty astounding and you know by today that even those aren't uh you know numbers to turn your nose up at. Phantasm is certified fresh with 77% based on 47 critic reviews and an audience score of 67% based on 10,000 plus user ratings and it rocks a cool 3.4 out of 5 star average on Letterbox. Um, so in getting into a little bit more of that sort of dreamlike nature um, I wouldn't be surprised, and this was something that I learned in uh, research for the movie, that originally this was a three-hour cut for Phantasm. And it, and it was funny. I read an interview where he basically says, um, you know, I submitted a three-hour cut. I thought it should be three hours, but I realized that audiences probably wouldn't be able to pay attention for that long. And I was like, that's probably the right decision <laughs> for, for more reasons than one. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's weird
0: because uh for the longest time, it's funny that you mentioned the three-hour cut, because for the longest time, Coscarelli, from what I understand, he did not have the elements that he had cut from the film. And it was only very recently that he had uh that he had rediscovered them. I mean, there are I shouldn't say I shouldn't say hey, let me rewind that back because there were there were elements that uh that he ended up using in phantasm for oblivion as flashbacks but uh the the entire three hour cut uh he does still have it more or less and he has thought of at some point hopefully soon uh releasing the three hour cut uh I don't know if uh if he's gonna get JJ abrams on board to <laughs> to restore it because i it's funny that i was going to say jj abrams did a fantastic job of restoring uh the original phantasm giving it uh the a 4k scan and i don't know if he, i don't know if you have the same version that i do but uh it's in the uh it's in the box set the phantasm sphere box set uh that was released a couple of years ago it looks wow it's so i say that as i say that as I'm, I'm going looking thinking back to when i first saw it on dvd with mgm first released it and it's just like oh this is very
1: night and day uh so it's it's really is a a revelation if you want to call it that yeah i have the uh the remaster it came with the most recent box set that they released of yes. all the movies
0: um mm-hmm.
1: which i mean when it I don't know how much it is now, but when it, it popped up on Amazon, it was like $20, I think. And I was like, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a blind buy. I'm not a huge blind buy guy with movies or even games, but that was the type of thing where I was like, well, I've seen the original and I enjoyed it enough and I would be interested to see how you expand on this. Again, this is such a singularly bizarre movie. How do you expand on that to have this whole universe um, of what is, you know, while there is a fandom, of course, around these films, I would say that it is definitely one of the more niche series in horror, right? I don't think that, if you mention, talk about horror with most people, they're like, oh yeah, I have a great love for like Phantasm 3 and 4 or 5 and whatnot. Um, Even though, you know, what do I know? I haven't gotten that far in the series myself. But one of the reasons why I brought up the original cut being three hours was, and it started making me think like, if you had released that, does the film have the same dreamlike quality to it? Because one of the things that I've picked up on um, multiple rewatches now, of or the original is how, you know, not only, of course, are there lots of narrations of like young Mike and what he's going through his mind and all of these things during the film, not only, of course, are there the dream sequences in the movie, but the sense that some f- scenes don't feel like they have this normal, Connected, connective tissue to the next scene, right? Sometimes scenes lack a resolution or they suddenly stop and then they pick up and they're, you know, on the other side of town and they're having a conversation about something else. I wonder how much of the dreamlike quality is from, you know, oh, we just had to cut a ton out of this movie to make whatever it is, 129 minute movie or, or an, rather an hour and 29 minutes. Um, or is it the type of thing where you know, no, these were cuts that were made in a way to actually, you know, facilitate that dreamlike nature. That's something that I've kind of wondered, uh, recently considering, you know, how much was cut, <laughs> um, which at the same time, you know, it's a good thing that he did cut it because that gives this film that quality. Um, and something that you mentioned, like that theme song or the soundtrack in general for the film, um, from Fred Myro, I just find that to be so perfectly fitting in a way that, you know, you know, it, it is tapping into you know that kind of '80s era synth score, right? But at the same yes. time, it has a very floaty feeling to it. Because I went back and was listening to it today while I was jotting down some notes, and it's a type of thing where you know I I don't really know how to talk about music in a, in a way that sounds <laughs> half intelligent, but it begins very distinctly different than the more synth elements that are later. Like there's a little bit of like a 30 second lead in where it kind of sounds like a different genre almost. And then it bleeds into that synth score and it kind of has these peaks and valleys of intensity. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's something to that in the way that to go along with a film that is very untraditional in its construction and in its subject matter, um, the soundtrack being just as unconventional, I think, does a lot to sort of lift that up, if if you will.
0: Yeah. I mean, the closest that I could think of is... is- early John Carpenter. I mean, sure. obviously Halloween, uh, Assault on Precinct 13, you know, The Fog. I mean, that is sort of, that's the closest that I can sort of uh, point, narrow it down in terms of how, of the, the feeling with regards to uh, Phantasm score. But as you said, I mean, it does, I mean, a good score is going to complement and accentuate uh, a film and that's exactly what uh, Myro score does. I mean, it, it it accentuates and enhances that dreamlike atmosphere and feeling, uh, as well as giving uh, giving it a little a little bit of an edge, particularly when the main theme comes out. And you have, I mean, when you have Mike uh, running to Morningside, and you have. There's the voiceover from Angus Scrim, where it's like, "You played a good game, boy, but now <laughs> the game is finished. Now you die." And he's like, "Obviously, that's not the be- that's not the best scrim, but you get that sort of you get that sort of uh, that feeling of dread, that tension in there, and that's again enhanced by the score. And of course, again, the very last shot." of the the film where again as I said uh, the tall man is seen in uh, Jody's and not jo- Jody's Mike's Mike's be- uh, Mike's uh, bedroom mirror and there's that, there's that sting and then it just rises through a crescendo and then you just hear boy and then it's the it, it's snap to the dwarves dragging uh, dragging Mike away and then that's the end of the film and it's kind of again just sort of, it's the score is just superb in that regard, uh, in terms of uh, complementing the film and enhancing it. So,
1: yeah, absolutely. And you know, something that I mentioned in the intro about this film being an example, I think, of like bootstraps filmmaking, right? Again, a $300,000 budget, which again is <laughs> when you're thinking about, I, I forget now if that was for inflation or not, but granted, again, it is a shoestring budget. You can tell from the sense of how the movie just looks right. It is not heavily inundated with effects right out of the gate, right? It does have its moments later on in the film. Um, But at the same time, you have these for the most part actors that are not especially well known. Um, They're people that I think you can tell uh, from their performances that uh, they are, I would say, leaning a little bit more towards the amateurish side, if you will. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, again, all of these factors come into this film that again is so unabashedly weird and itself in a way that like this, for this movie to be as confident as I always find it to be in just presenting these ideas about, yeah, there's this mortician who's doing these weird experiments and he's got these, you know, these crazy silver balls and these that fly around and these little jawas that, you know, attack people and whatnot. Um, It is a film that, you know, again, i I'm impressed by just how confident uh, Coscarelli was in bringing this very strange vision of horror to life. Um, And, you know, at the same time, the more that I've watched the movie and it's grown on me, even some of the awkward bits that are still awkward and still kind of like, I don't know if cringy is the way to put it, but like some of the dialogue uh, still stands out in a way where it's just like, oh, that's kind of like an awkwardly written line or something like that. At the same time, though it becomes one of those lines that feels iconic in a way that like you can laugh about with people when you watch it. Like I think about when they go to the funeral at the very beginning for one of their friends and Jody's talking to Reggie and he's like, I just don't get off on funerals. It's just like, what a way to, what a way to phrase that. Or (laughs) later in the film when, you know, they're arming up and they're going to go out and try to stop the tall man. Um, He's telling, he's reassuring his younger brother who he's just handed a shotgun to. He says, No warning shots. Warning shots are bullshit. Like, just (laughs) matter of fact lines like that, you know, those don't come out of, you know, people from a group of people that are especially well versed in making films, I would say, for the most part or something like that. But at the same time, those are elements of the film now that I find to be iconic and I laugh at whenever I watch it, laughing with the film rather than at it, perhaps. But uh, yeah, I thought we could just chat about like the characters for a little bit because Again, this has a very eccentric cast of characters, I'll say. Um, and, you know, I, I have a feeling of who our favorite character other than the tall man is. But uh, what do you think of the characters in this film?
0: I mean, it's, for me at least, uh, and I did uh, rewatched, like you, I rewatched Phantasm recently. And I was really impressed, for the most part. I mean, it was not perfect, but uh, Michael Baldwin's performance as Mike. I thought that it was for the most part, it was genuine. I mean, there was, there was some kind of, it means there were uh, some moments like when he, uh, after he, after uh, Reggie and the girls and uh, Mike are attacked uh, by the tall man. And then Mike makes his way home and he's, you know, he's upset. set. It's not quite, I mean, you can see the tears coming down. It's just kind of, there's, it's almost there, but it's not quite there. But it's there's. But when you think about it, there's kind of a uh, you know, what would you do in that sort of situation where, you know, you just had your friend killed supposedly, and you know you've got this you've got this seemingly unkillable force in the tall man uh, coming after you, and you're just confiding in your brother, who you know in the back of your mind, which is get kind of a segue. One of the things that I that I wish that the script had touched, I'm sorry, the film had touched on a bit more was Jody's uh, reluctance, if you want to call it, to having Mike as his kid brother and being in, uh, in custody of him. I, custody. I don't know this kind of weird, kind of weird way to put it. But you get it a yeah, legal guardian. guardian guardianship,
1: like, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. So, you there's there is that there's a seed that Coscarelli had planted there and it was kind of like you wish that they had that there was a bit more to it but I mean who knows maybe that's part of what the uh, was cut out of the three hour cut but the fact that they they left that in there and there there's that seed in there there's that sort of there's that still that you know that their connect that connection is there and you know that Jody, cares for mike and then mike wants to you know he wants to protect uh, protect jody but at the same time they're basically they've got each other i mean at that time they didn't, again they didn't realize that reggie had survived or did he <laughs> <So> <laughs> they? you never know uh but and it's funny when you had mentioned the uh the humor Uh, that was another thing that struck me again, as I had mentioned uh, at the beginning uh, where there's all these different little, there's these little elements and one of them is the comedy. Uh, One of the things was for me at least uh, and it works as, it works as comedy and it works as, and it works as terror when uh, after the famous scene where with the, uh, the ball and the, Caretaker and uh Mike is standing there in the in the hallway, and then the tall man shows up. Mike turns around and it's like, um, and he's like, Oh shit. And (laughs) and it's kind of you, you there's there's obviously there's a bit of amateur to that. I mean, but at the same time, it's kind of if you put yourself in Mike's shoes, like what do you do? Sort of thing. He's like, What do you say? It's like so. At the same time, it's a funny line, but at the same time, you're kind of like, "Well, shit, what do I do?" sort of thing. And it's just kind of from there, it just it just goes off. Uh, so that, uh, for me at least, is one of the. It seems kind of like a funny scene to some people, but for me, I could see the terror in that as well, mm. and that I think is one of the uh, one of the more notable scenes with uh, with regards to Mike. And then, of course, also. Even further on, where uh, Jody has basically said to Mike, locked him in the house, and (laughs) you can see there's frustration in Mike's uh, in Mike not being able to be there for Jody again. Sort of playing off of the whole sort of kid brother, but also looking want to be you know looking out for your older brother sort of thing, and uh, where Mike has eventually just like MacGyver's a. Shot, a shotgun shell with a, with a thumbtack and a hammer. It's like, I don't know if that would really work, but if, whatever it worked. It was good. It was kind of, it's kind of one of those sort of spur of the moment things. And I mean, like, who knows? I don't know. I I w I wouldn't try that with a shotgun shell, but anyways, it was, it was kind of the main thing that I was getting at was you could sense that there was, there was the frustration there, which I thought uh, came through in, uh, in uh, Mike's uh, performance. Uh so, I mean, overall. I mean, like I said, it's not the it's not the best, uh, the uh, the best performance. I mean, it's a little. There's a little bit of you know child actors sort of over overacting or underacting in uh, in some of Mike's uh, performance. But overall, I think it's it comes across as genuine, which you know is something that really other than other than Angus Scrim as you said. I think it really sort of is part of, for me at least, uh, really uh, stood out for me uh, in return.
1: I definitely agree in terms of Mike. Um, I think that there is a, 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 just a genuine nature to capturing what a kid would be feeling in that moment. And, you know, we've talked about the comedy aspect of it. At the same time, though, like we noted earlier, it's impressive, I would say, for a film like this, whether all the comedy is intentional or not, you know, some of it is just – a plain awkward read or a uh, just an awkwardly written line. But at the same time, the film really does feel like it's built upon that foundation of just grieving and loss through the eyes of a child, right? So I think that while it might be giving the film a little too much credit, at the same time, when you're pairing all these different dreamlike qualities to it, the sort of amateur nature of large parts of uh, the people involved – At the same time, it does feel like a story being told through the eyes of a child, which works in a way for that film. I'll say for Mike, you know, I wouldn't say he's one of the more like egregious child actors of horror. Some people like love taking little kids to task for their performances in horror films for whatever reason. But I will say that I think there was a little more untapped potential with him just based off that scene that you mentioned, right? Where he MacGyver's the shotgun shell and the hammer to escape his bedroom. I was like... I wanted like three or four more scenes in the movie like that, almost like him being this sort of, you know, this, uh, small town, suburban MacGyver, where he's always building these little weird contraptions and tools, but he doesn't have a reason to actually do that other than boredom. But, oh, now he does because he's leading this, you know, one man, uh, investigation and whatnot, or, well, it becomes a trio of investigators. Um, but before we go into the tall man a little bit, cause it. It really is impossible not to spend the entire time talking about how perfect Angus Scrimm is for that role. Um, I have to say that I really enjoy Reggie, uh, who's played by Reggie Bannister, who's the the local ice cream man that you know Jody and Mike are friends with, who comes over like to just jam on the guitar once in a while with Jody. Um, I really like his arc and how he goes from being sort of a goof, you know, a goof to almost becoming the savior. And, you know, I know he's recurring throughout the series, even if I haven't uh, seen all those other films, but, you know, getting to see him as somebody that always comes in like at the worst possible moment. I think about when um, Mike gets attacked by this little like fly creature and Reggie comes in as they're like shoving it in the garbage disposal and stabbing it with a butcher knife and all this crazy insanity that's happening. And yet- he kind of just always comes in at that one moment where it's like, oh, you should have been here five minutes ago to help with that. (laughs) At (laughs) the same time, though, he goes from being this sort of just a goof to, again, being the savior who is not only there to back them up, but at certain points, you know, steps in and does what they aren't capable of doing or they haven't done. And, you know, that comes into play when um, they find the portal to the tall man's world. And Reggie's the one that, you know, touches the banisters and basically... uh, begins the climax of the film, basically, and puts the tall man on his back foot, if you will.
0: Mm-hmm. Um And, exactly. you
1: know, I'm not going to go on a thing about the sequel, but I thoroughly enjoy his character and the development of his character in that and the fact that he's not just used as comedic relief the entire time. He's a very funny character who has, you know, his own quirks and mannerisms and, uh, and commentary on things that are happening, but it feels like with the sequel like the natural progression of his character is him becoming more of a true hero of the story which helps now that you know jody's not there he's more of a parental figure um if you will and you know you get a a, a nice moment at the end right between him and mike where this kid is all alone he has no one and you know his bro- older brother's best friend steps up and says like oh well you know maybe i can be the uh the new guardian so that way this kid doesn't you know Go down some path perhaps that you wouldn't want him to go down. But enough about Reggie. Uh, let's talk about Angus Scrim. You know, you <laughs> yes. you gave us that pitch perfect uh impression of him and his voice. And, you know, he truly is, again, even if I describe Phantasm as being more of a niche horror series, I believe, and you know, not everybody might agree with that, but I don't think it's one of the more well-known uh horror series. But he is an instantly iconic character, I think, for somebody that doesn't have to over re, overly rely on practical work or makeup or costume he's just a massively tall he's like six4 guy yes. that looks like a, a matchstick in a suit that's too big for him and or it's too small for him and you know he doesn't talk a lot in the movie but just his presence i feel like and you know of course it's the way he shot he towers over everybody but he fills up the entire frame almost um so like for you like how does the tall man land as a uh, as an antagonist i think it's i mean it,
0: he's uh, angus scrim is iconic just for the fact that he's been able to he was able to carry this character throughout you know, the five films that's, uh, of the series. And, uh, you know, he's done theater work obviously, but he's just more well, most well-known at least for horror fans to be the tall man. And in sort of classic horror movie fashion, you don't know much about the tall man. I mean, you, uh, throughout the very first film and it's kind it, again, it plays to the benefit of the character because there's something mysterious about him. You don't know what it is, and that's scary. And then coupled with the fact that, you know, as you said, Angus Scrim is six foot four. Uh, Don Coscarelli's uh, mother, who actually did the makeup and the costumes, purposely gave uh, Scrim a suit that was too small for him and put him in lifts to just make him even more imposing. And there's something just very iconic. I keep on see I keep on using that word iconic, but it is true. It's, it's it, true. <laughs> it's, it's something very memorable, if you want to call it that, of just the tall man walking down the hallway in morningside or just showing up in the window or the doorway. And just as just, he doesn't say as you said, he doesn't say much, but when he does say something, it's sort of like he really is he really is the personification of death in the, in the yeah, film. That's and, a good way to put it. I mean, it's, it's, and I'm not the, obviously I'm not the only one who's who agrees with that. I mean, it's just, it's, it's fact. I mean, he really is sort of, uh, he really is death. I mean, he's worse than his mortician and everything. And the line that he does use in the sequel that originally I find, I found out recently that, was one of the cut scenes of the three-hour cut with, you know, when you die, you you think you go to heaven, you go with us sort of thing. That was originally intended for the first film. That was uh, part of the alternate ending that they had uh, where, uh, again, Jody uses a fire extinguisher and kills the tall man that way. But again, that was cut and we get this ending instead which i think is probably i mean coscarelli never intended for the there to be a sequel but he also never intended it to be you know there there to be more explained for the tall man either so it's kind
1: of funny how it all worked out but well i mean in talking about you know the tall man for starters has one of the most iconic like swagger walks of any horror Antagonist, yes. right? The way that not only he walks down that mausoleum, um, or the, rather the uh, yeah, I guess you'd call it a, a mausoleum, Morningside, um, Morningside yeah. Cemetery, yeah, yeah. So the way he walks down that hallway, right, and also the way that uh, Coscarelli frames it, but also the echoing of his uh, of him walking just makes it sound like he has you know infinite mass, as if he's supernatural, just in the way that he walks, um, and even later on when uh, Mike sees him in town right and you have that really fantastic moment that kind of feels like somebody recalling a nightmare about this terrifying figure where you have him doing that swagger stroll walk down main street and then stops right in front of Reggie's truck and you have the ice or the um the 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 i guess the dry ice stuff emitting from the back of the uh, ice cream truck. And, uh, and you know, what does he do? He sits, he stands there and like recoils a little bit, but then he looks directly at Mike and he's like staring mm-hmm. at him, down, like staring him down. Um, and I think that, again, he doesn't say much, but like you had said, the way in which he delivers all of his lines, you can tell that he has a theater background, I think, in the way mm-hmm. that he delivers those lines, um, just because he commands the audience to pay attention to him in a way that uh, I find to be, You know, just because someone's a horror antagonist and they, you know, over the years, you'll have these horror antagonists that are known for their quips. They'll be known for, you know, the bloodshed that they let. But it's not always the way in which they deliver lines that's memorable. Um, And with Scrim and the tall man, you know, I think that I joked, this is one of those uh, killers that should be in uh, Dead by Daylight Yes, (laughs) Yes. <laughs> uh, but it's the type of thing where it's like, could you imagine if they took his voice from the game and you hear that dialogue behind you or him taunting you or something like that? And that would be genuinely chilling because I think that a lot of his line reads are I, not only his look is iconic, but his delivery of those lines is truly iconic. Um, mm-hmm. And I, again, you know, to have somebody come in and just own a role so thoroughly and the fact that, again, you know, you would hope that, I guess, I don't want to uh, generalize, but, you know, it's a performance that as much as it's beloved, I wish that it was even more well-known because I find that it is a performance that really is defined by just this very strange film uh, that if they had had another villain or a lesser villain, I don't know if I would uh, appreciate Phantasm nearly as much.
0: No, I don't think that it would. And you're right, exactly. You do do wish that there was more well-known of, you know... It's funny because Angus Grimm basically, he wasn't given much direction by Coscarelli for the role. And so he basically just turned it up, as we saw. And it's funny, you you did mention that he was, and I did mention it myself, but his background as a uh, theater actor, you know, the, the presence, I mean, another scene again so it's the same scene that as i mentioned before where uh he had where mike is like oh shit the the one seat it's just you do see you you have the tall man right behind mike mike walks towards takes a couple steps and the tall man sort of mirrors his walk and it's all he's basically stalking mike at that point and then all of a sudden he's just like that, and then Mike takes off, and then the tall man just leaves or uh, is right right behind him. I think that that right there is a small scene, but at the same time, you can again, because of the way that Scrim was able to have that imposing presence and just command. I think is really what uh, what sells it, and it was a, it was a it was uh, for me at least when I was younger. It was a scary scene. It's Just kind of, as I said, he's essentially he spends again when I had said that there's that slasher aspect of Phantasm. Basically, the tall man is stalking Mike throughout the film, and it's you know it's no secret there, but and, but there is sort of a sort of. There is a delight in the tall man's face when he, for example, when Mike finally, Mike finally gets out of uh, out of his house, or tries to get out of his house, and the tall man's there, standing there waiting for him. You, you know, he picks him up by the essentially the scruff of his neck, and he there's this sort of you could look at Scrim's face, and there's almost this sort of a delight in the fact that he's he's essentially toying with Mike this entire time. And I think that that is that just immediately it's like, oh, that just sells the tall man uh, right there for me. Just the fact that little bit of that little bit of emotion there for the right because for the rest of the film, he's kind of just this sort of emotionless blank slate. And yeah, it's just, uh. (laughs) ah.
1: Yeah, no, you know, you mentioned um, that scene in which he's mirroring Mike's movements. And again, I think that. That's one of those scenes that is very small and I don't know if many people would list that as like one of their most memorable sequences or scary sequences of the film. But in getting a little bit more into, you know, the more overt horror elements and moments in the film, you know, that is the quality of this movie that I think is really special uh, once you can get on board with the movie, right? Because again, it is this kind of shoestring budget of a movie that doesn't have a great deal of effects outside of, you know, more of the back half of the movie at the same time, though, those little moments really do facilitate just how terrifying this character is when they're not even doing that much. It's one of those things that makes you, you know, appreciate Coscarelli's direction, right? In the fact that, you know, you can have this environment that they return to periodically throughout the film, but at the same time, it's still terrifying in a way, uh, in new ways, every single time you revisit it, right? I think that um, also just the way in which that he captures the inside of the uh, you know of the morgue, I found to be really really interesting and just again it it the way that it looks you know it's got this really bright marble and just the way in which he frames it it seems like it goes on forever um, which again plays into this sort of dreamlike nature um, which I guess the. The morgue was actually constructed of plywood and marble-covered plastic contact paper, which you know I only know because I read the IMDb. But <laughs> the reason that I mentioned that is that the way in which the colors pop every single time they're in that environment, it gives this very sort of normally mundane, average setting the air of like, oh, there's like a fantasy element to this, um, which I am really a fan of, and I think that it makes – that environment that you know they keep they recycle essentially um, it never makes it boring or uninteresting or kind of overtly being like oh yeah we're returning to this place again um, it also helps that every time we revisit it's either a dream state or it's you know you have Mike going there in what is probably the most famous scene of the movie um, after the nightmare sequence which we'll talk about. Um, But you have Mike there and doing his one man investigation and all of a sudden you hear this strange sound and it's these silver, the silver ball that has these two prongs that poke out of it that are flying and stalking him. And you even get this like Terminator vision at one point, right, where the screen's all red and it's kind of like very strange. And, you know, it I suppose it's low budget, but it's done in a way that it again, it plays off this idea that like am I really seeing this? Is this really happening right now? Like there is this air of mystery to everything that's happening. Um, But then of course you get the scene where it, it tries to get Mike, but Mike dodges it and it crashes into the caretaker's forehead. And it's not just that he got speared in the head, but that a drill comes out and then proceeds to spit blood out of the, the ass end of the spear, which is just this fantastically deranged moment uh, of practical work. And, you know, at that point in the movie, I found that scene to be, shocking because again, you know, it's not an effects heavy movie. It doesn't have a lot of practical work in it for a majority of the time. So when that moment happens, it's kind of like this shocking event that happens and you're just like, holy shit, like, oh, okay. So we're going to pair this fantasy and this creative energy with also some like the the gory bits that horror fans lo- uh, all love.
0: Yeah, no, it's, uh, you're, you're right. Probably other than the nightmare sequence, uh that one scene uh, where the ball and again there's a certain there's again I don't know if a intended for it to be the uh, to be f- funny but I found it the, the, the way that it was shot after Mike basically choose choose the hand of the caretaker and there's a <laughs> there's the blood that comes out it's like okay that's kind of cheesy and everything like <laughs> but then but then when there's it cuts the shot of just the and I, I didn't know it's a reverse shot. It's obviously a reverse shot, uh, but it's just kind of like, you just see the caretaker just like deer in a headlight sort of thing. And then you see the ball come in and it's like, they thunk. and there's, it's, it's kind of like, it's a funny, it's a funny sound. <laughs> yeah. I keep on coming, coming back. It's like, thunk. and then, <laughs> and then of course, once you, you know, you cut to the side shot where the, the, the ball stuck in the guy's, in the guy's forehead and then the drill comes out and then, you know, just the awful, I mean, between the screaming and the crunching (laughs) sound and then just the geyser of blood that shoots out. I mean, that was for, again, that was for me, one of the more terrifying, what the terrifying aspect of it. And I actually was, there was a, it's kind of a segue because I had seen that. I had seen that, that scene before, and there was a there was I'm trying to remember what the uh, there was a compilation video similar to uh was, Terror in the Isles.
1: Was uh, it oh. like Bravo's 101 scariest moments? Cause that's how I saw it, because I would th- I always bring this up on the podcast, but it was the special that introduced me to so many movies before I would see yes. them. I mean, I wouldn't see the Phantasm for 15 plus years after I had seen that mausoleum scene because you know of that hundred and one um, scariest moments thing, but I interrupted you.
0: No, no, sorry. Uh, no, it wasn't the Bra- It wasn't Bravos one hundred and one. It was kind of. It was. Na- I'm sure that somebody's going to be screaming at the <laughs> when they're listening to the podcast. It was narrated by Robert Englund, and it featured it featured uh, scenes of Pinhead, t- uh, Leatherface, Jason, uh, the Tall Man. I can't remember what okay. it was it was I, it was i I, Blockbuster. Distin-
1: I distinctly remember that there was like a slasher icon d v d that was like highlighting all those guys, yes. and then I remember that he was on the yes
0: i'm i i'm, I'm gotta be looking it up right now and <laughs> it's gonna like it's gonna be it's gonna be driving me nuts but anyways, that was the first time that I had seen that and and of course after that after after the the caretaker finally drops drops to the ground and he's twitching, you see. <laughs> the puddle of the urine start to go. And that yeah. for me was just like, Oh no, that can't be it. That actually was the one scene that they wanted to get cut. Yeah. Uh, That the NPA said, we can't have that. And then I can't remember who it was who said, you know, leave it in because it's all part of the thing and everything. And so, but it was just like, you don't see that certain, that something like that happen in terms of just, a guy wets himself Mm. after having, you know, dying, which is kind of, I mean, it could happen, but it's just something you don't see. And it's just adds to the, it just adds that much more to the already horrific scene. That, and the fact that Mike is just going to like,
1: so anyways, um, those are the little details. I think that make scenes that are already shocking or upsetting or gruesome, you know, that makes them that much more disturbing. And I think that, you know, a, That scene reminds me of um, the scene in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original, when that, I forget the character's name, but he's investigating the farmhouse, right? And Leatherface comes out of nowhere with the hammer and hits him in the head with the hammer. And it's not just that, you know, there's the squeal and then Leatherface appears that scared me as a kid, but it was the fact that the camera lingers on that character's feet as he's, you know, convulsing or something and his feet are kicking on the wooden plank and everything. That was the part, you know. It's also fucking terrifying when Leatherface drags his body and then slams that door. But you know, yes. it's the little details in seeing how somebody's body reacts after a great trauma has been induced that mm-hmm. makes it, you know, it gives it an air of reality almost. Where it's just like, oh, even if this, su- even, whether it's a supernatural death or whether it's, you know, I get hit in the head with a hammer by this backroads cannibal, um, seeing a bodily reaction to something that. Is not overly effects heavy, but is something you can actually imagine happening. I don't know. For yes. me, that makes certain kills um, or you know violence in movies stand out in a way that makes it even more disturbing. I think.
0: Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. I think that there's there's kind of a you, I don't know what it is. Uh, there is a sort of aspect of I, I, I immediately I, for whatever reason I'm thinking of the time that uh, in Lord of the Rings when Christopher Lee. The legend himself basically had to explain to um, basically in Lord of the Rings, where Christopher Lee, the legend himself, had to explain to Peter Jackson how someone would react to getting stabbed in the back, and it's just kind of you think it, it's kind of like, oh, but then, <laughs> uh, but then Christopher Lee has basically said it's like it sounds like it would be as if. I'm paraphrasing but it would be like if someone had sucked the breath out of them they'd be like oh, sort of thing they would mm. gasp yeah. and I think that that was kind of one of those you don't think about it because you're kind of you're kind of attuned to sort of like the acting part uh, part of this there's a certain over the topness to it even when someone gets stabbed it's like ah, ah, but you don't it's the subtle I think that's uh the body as you as you said. When something that you don't expect, but then also you think like, "Oh, that could really happen," and that could be someone's genuine reaction to that, and that's what I think it makes it that much more terrifying and upsetting. Um, as we put, as we both know. Yeah. So uh, that that was just kind of my uh, my sort of like thought that I had there. It's just there. So
1: yeah. Um, You know, a scene that we mentioned that uh, I wanted to chat just briefly about that I think is really, truly iconic from this movie, almost as much as the, uh, you know, the silver sphere is the first nightmare sequence that Mike has, right? Where you have him in his bed at home and the camera's zoomed out so you can get a sense of the setting and then it zooms in on him. And then, you know, it's still zoomed in on his face as he's sleeping and then his eyes pop open. The camera pulls out and you see the tall man standing behind him and now his bed has been magically transported to a graveyard. And you're like, oh, holy shit, the tall man can do stuff like this? Like, what's happening? And then, you know, the way in which Coscarelli builds upon that moment is it's like, okay, yeah, it'd be creepy if the tall man was behind you when you're sleeping and you were in a graveyard all of a sudden. You know, it'd be even creepier if those little Jawa minions that he has rise up out of the ground and grab you and start trying to pull you down into, you know, six feet under. Um, That moment, I find, you know, not only could I have used a few more moments like that, but again, in a film that for the first time you're watching it is so jarring in so many different ways, you know, those moments and the place in which they're placed within the film... I find it to be really uh, grounding, if you will, that, you know, Mm -hmm. it it kind of like gives you this point for the audience of being like, okay, I don't really have my bearings, but oh, this is genuinely shocking and terrifying. And it, it, again, at the same time, it kind of messes with your perception of what is reality and what is not, which furthermore, I think is why the film is described as dreamlike, but also the importance of having the protagonist be this young character, right? This idea Mm -hmm. that it's like, well... We're trying to distinguish between fantasy and reality, but at the same time, you know, it's more about his reaction to things. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, you I don't think you could have Jody be half as scared as Mike seems to be in that moment. Um, and that's always been, you know, for it's a memorable moment for everybody, I think, that watches the movie. But uh, yeah, that's one of my favorite bits of the film. Mm-hmm.
0: No, it's, it's, again, it's sort of, it's really surprising how, as I said before, where the film is so disconnected, uh, and he, as you had mentioned it as well, Jay, that everything sort of there's everything sort of jumps from one scene to another, and there's sort of, sort of you would think that that you know something that was cut like that, you would think that people would you know immediately sort of like tune out or it's like what the hell's going on sort of thing, but it works in the context of the film. Because it is that sort of, as we as we've mentioned many times already, it's just that that fantasy, that dreamlike aspect of the film, mm. and it just it's there's a real irony to that, I think, in terms of uh, just it that disjointedness. Because you normally, if a film was like that, and you didn't have that fantasy, that dreamlike atmosphere to it, people would be like, "This is incoherent." And I mean, it's. <laughs> And to, to be fair, I mean there are it it there are some moments in uh, Phantasm that are incoherent. I mean there <laughs> yeah. is a sort. Of, I mean they sort of kind of work. I mean when when uh, Mike visits the fortune teller and it's sort of like put your hand in the box sort of thing, and it's just oh it's like don't fear, and it's like okay um all right but then the box disappears that it's just. Mike doesn't question it. It's like, here's your $10 sort of thing. So yeah, whatever. Uh, It's stuff like that, that, you know, credit to Coscarelli. It comes back around where Mike is, you know, having to, again, confront his fears, fears of death uh, at the hands of the tall man, but also having to, again, help out rescue Jody. If you want to call it rescue Mm. or trap the tall man, whichever, Uh, It's funny that it just comes back around like that. And so again, it's a credit to Costarelli for being able to cut the film as much as he did, but still make it coherent, even though it's incoherent. It's really, (laughs) it's it's a really weird aspect that is. I think that's what's, I think that's probably one of the great aspects of phantasm, but I also think that's one of the things that potentially sets it back for a lot of people who don't, sit or uh, who don't, you know, sit down and actually watch it. They're kind of like, well, what is this sort of thing? It's like, I don't get what's going on. They don't, they don't, you kind of have to, you have, you kind of have to watch phantasm, I think multiple times in order for you to be able to, to be able to, uh, to fully grasp what's, uh, what's going on with it. And I know that not a lot of people, you know, particularly in these days will have the tolerance for that. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of, a. I think that's also a product of a lot of uh, 80s horror films that are slow burners, which I, you know, I'm all for slow burners. Uh, but I think that a lot of people will get frustrated by it. And I think that that, uh, the fact that there's this disconnect, uh, I think that will frustrate, I think that frustrates a lot of people even more. And mm-hmm. so I think that's what's kind of, Again this is sort of my theory in terms of why phantasm really hasn't you know isn't up there with you know the texas chainsaw massacre friday the 13th and so on and so forth even though you can kind of see elements of uh a nightmare of the game uh, of I will say the game <laughs> I wish there was a phantasm game of elements of phantasm in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm. You know, I mean, they both share the the dreamlike atmosphere sure, as well as having that fantasy horror aspect of them. So, I think that's, as I said, I think that's one of the reasons why it's not as popular, which is a shame because when you do sit down and, you know, actively watch the film, you will appreciate it even more so once you've watched it through and you, you're you aware of what's going on and you watch it again and you're like, oh, that's, you know, there's something new to pick out, to pull out. And then eventually you kind of like, oh, wow, this is really good sort of thing.
1: There have been plenty of films that attempt this kind of dreamlike atmosphere and whatnot. Um, and, you know, I would say for those, for the most part, people are probably like 50-50, right? It's either that they are totally into that or they're frustrated and they want answers and whatnot. With a film like Phantasm, I think what allows that dreamlike nature to never become irritating or um, you know, off-putting, I suppose, is because the themes of the film and how they're intrinsically tied to the characters and the things that we've all mentioned, right? I think dealing with loss and grief and these things, that stops the film from feeling aimless, I would say, which I think is yes. different than it being um, you know, incoherent at times in terms of how you put the pieces together – But it's the type of film where at the very end of the day, it's like, okay, you might still have a question about what was real, what was not. But at the end of the day, you get to see, you know, this arc and this journey that the characters have taken. Mm -hmm. Even if, you know, getting to the ending of the film, we learn that the entire thing was a dream. Reggie, who is, you know, who had sacrificed himself basically to save Mike and Jody and to stop the uh, tall man, right, is alive and is not dead He tells Mike that Mike was just having a nightmare and that Jody died in a car wreck. And then you have that um, final scene of him, you know, proposing they go on this road trip together to get out of town, to get over this and to further help, you know, Mike to process all this terrible loss that he's been dealing with. Um, Mm -hmm. But then, as you said, you have that really fantastic closing scene where, you know, he closes the closet door and who's there in the reflection the tall man, and then Mike gets grabbed through the mirror from the little Jawa henchman, um, which is a really fan. I love that ending every time I see it because again, it's yes, it, it and there's a scene like that earlier in the movie too, where there's another dream sequence. I, I think it's a dream sequence. See, this is what happens with the film <laughs> exactly, that, exactly. that deals with uh, dreamlike imagery and dreamlike <laughs> sense of uh, pacing. But you have that moment where Jody is sitting in a recliner in the morgue. And you have the tall man walking towards him, and then you have the little Jawas burst out of one of the graves uh, and grab him and pull him in. But uh, I really love that ending, though, because again, you have it's like an Inception almost. Like, is this a dream within a dream, or is this actually happening and progressing a narrative that could potentially be uh, be picked up again from the future? Which at the time they didn't know, but uh, as we know now, it would go on to spawn a, a five film series. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: And it's again. I keep I keep on coming back to the idea of the idea the the overarching theme, as you mentioned, the sense of loss. And it's really this film is about Mike uh, trying to process it. And there is there is sort of a as we as again we've talked about it all all throughout this uh, this podcast. There are elements where you sort of start to see that Mike is sort of, Mike is, it's dreaming, but then he's also able to control it. I mean, the whole sort of scene right at the end where they think they've beaten the tall man, where uh, Mike is able to leap over the mine shaft, the tall man falls in And then, right on cue, Jody is up at the top of the the (laughs) big hill, pushing in all of the pushing in all of these boulders. It's sort of like it's cheesy in the same. And again, as I said, mentioned before, one of the uh, with uh, uh, Mike's lines, there's a cheesiness to it, but at the same time, you can sort of see it as a dream sequence in that regard, where you know your big brother comes in to save the day, and you know jody is raising his arms in triumph and it's sort of like out of con out of if you didn't have that context you're like what it's like get out of here this is this <laughs> ridiculous yeah. but but when you look at it as a dream sequence it's like oh yeah that th- that makes perfect sense because it's sort of like it wraps everything up mm. because it, it is mike's dream and yeah, it's it's funny just how uh, i i keep I keep going back to what I said before, where there's a disconnect, but then because of the whole sort of the overarching theme, as we mentioned, with uh, the sense of loss and death, and just the way the Mike's processing it, I think that ties it ties the film all together. And I think that if there was, as you mentioned before. It, it might not have worked as well with a three hours, three hour phantasm. I don't know. We, maybe we'll find out one day. Uh, But as it stands, it's kind of, it keeps the film going. It keeps people uh, glued, if you want to call it that glued to the screen. And really that's what makes it stand out. uh, Even after all these years, I mean, as I, as I said, J.J. Abrams is a fan and he was able to, you know, for for the Star Wars film, he named Captain Phasmo after Phantasm. So it's
1: kind of, yeah. it, stuck with, it stuck with him, so, you know. <laughs> no, yeah, you know, I think that you put it perfectly, right? I think that I'll only be able to really recommend Phantasm to like my hardcore horror fans, you know, like people like yourself, uh, you know, like our buddy Neil that I mentioned at the top of the show. But um, at the same time, you know, I think that it definitely is a standout of uh, the 80s, just for, you know, it being a film that, again, you know, I've said it multiple times now, but it is so absurdly confident in something that is so bizarre and strange. And truly, I believe, unlike anything else uh, out there in terms of it's just, it's smorgasbord of genre that incorporates all of that. And at the same time, you know, it has these characters that While, again, you know, these might not be the most um, seasoned actors, all of them, or even, you know, some of the reads might be a little off. But at the same time, I think when you take all of these things together, you can follow real growth from the beginning of the film to the end of the film um, in a way that, you know, when it's paired with its aesthetic and just its, again, its uh, overly confident, bizarro nature, um, it makes Mm -hmm. for a really special film, I think, and one that uh, every time I watch it, I think I like it more. Um, and, you know, well, spoiler, I've seen the sequel and I really, really <laughs> like the sequel. Um, mm-hmm. I think that in just chatting about the original Phantasm and seeing the sequel, I'm really excited to kind of dive in uh, to the rest of the series and whatnot. And uh, I appreciate you coming on once again, man, to uh, kickstart the first series review of the year with me. Uh, this was a pleasure. And uh, I always enjoyed picking your brain about horror. Oh, oh the pleasure's all mine, Jay. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. No problem, man. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at NotFunnyJ. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.